Hello, everyone. Welcome to Teaching Matters. This program is produced in the studios of WOUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. This summer, I had the opportunity to join a group of teachers, students, and researchers on a trip to southern Ecuador. The trip was centered on work mitigating Chagas disease, which is a parasitic infection transmitted to humans by the Chichuro bug, or what is more commonly known as the kissing bug. On the trip, I was able to observe interdisciplinary teams working together as students and faculty engaged in place-based learning, all in the context of a very rural area of Ecuador. The process of cultural transition was apparent for those of us traveling to Ecuador, including trying to grapple with a different language while working with Ecuadorian colleagues from different disciplines. Through a special series of podcasts of Teaching Matters, partly recorded in the field, I hope to highlight some of the teaching and learning lessons from the trip. For this first podcast in the series, we will learn about the core purpose of the Ecuador Project, the mitigation of Chagas disease. This project is part of what's called the Healthy Living Initiative, which has resulted in multiple delegations over several years, uh, in fact, several decades, to try to mitigate the spread of Chagas disease in three small rural villages near the city of Queriamanga in Loja province in Ecuador. Dr. Mario Grijalva, who is the field program director and also director of the Infectious and Tropical Disease Institute at Ohio University, explained to one of the students how the Chichuro bug serves as a vector for the Chagas disease. So the insect, the insect is part of the environment, right? It's endemic in this area, is in the bushes, and it lives off the blood of squirrels, of the blood of uh, rats, possums, armadillos, and birds, um, you know, just out there. And so that is never going to be able to be eliminated, you know, it's, it's part of nature, right, in this area. However, what we're trying to do is to prevent those bugs to have contact with people. If you break the contact between the bugs and the people, you eliminate the transmission, the domestic vectorial transmission. So is it the same like malaria? Like you can't eliminate mosquitoes, but you can eliminate the spread of malaria, maybe? Something like that, something like that. The problem, uh, the issue with malaria is that malaria is a human disease. Mm -hmm. So you can actually eliminate malaria okay. because you can eliminate the parasite from the population, theoretically, right? And it is once everybody is treated, or, you know, there is no more parasites in people, malaria is gone. You can have the mosquitoes, but they are not infected by the parasite, mm -hmm. right? So this is tougher in that mm -hmm. sense than, than malaria. And you said yesterday something about how, um, like you can ingest chinchorro mm -hmm. and and you can still get chagas. That's correct. How is that? Well, if you think about a chinchorro, uh, a kissing bug, it has parasites in the gut inside, right? Mm -hmm. And it has parasites in the rectum that are highly infectious, and you have parasites in the Malpigian tubes, which are the equivalent of the kidney, if you will, right? So if you take those, that bug and you put it in a blender, 
and you put it in some, you know, pineapple juice or whatever, and blend that, then those parasites that are inside of the bug are going to be in the juice, right? And you don't have one parasite. You probably have, you know, tens of thousands of parasites. These are microscopic organisms, right? Just like flora. It's part of the flora of the bug. So these, you would spread all of these tens of thousands of parasites in this juice. Let's say you pour this juice into five glasses and everybody has a drink. So these parasites will be ingested and they very likely will be able to infect your mucosas in the mouth or in the esophagus or even in your stomach. I don't know what happens, where exactly happens, right? Um, I don't know if these parasites can survive the acid in the stomach, but in any case, you are putting parasites in mucosal areas that are highly susceptible to, you know, you don't have a, even an epithelium, right? You already have uh, easy access. If you were to put that same juice in your arm and you don't have any cut, the parasites cannot enter. You have skin, right? But if you put it in the mucosas, it's, you know, easy access. So what that means is that the parasites can enter and really make you sick. And that is uh, something that has been uh, documented and ongoing big time in Venezuela, in Caracas. There are many outbreaks of recent outbreaks of uh, oral trans transmitted Chagas disease in the city of Caracas, including uh, schools, including, uh, you know, things like that where hundreds of people or dozens of people have been infected at, at once. And it's, it's very violent because of the, usually when you get a, a transmission of the parasite via your skin, right, you get a, a very small inoculum, very few parasites. But if you drink this, you get uh, lots of parasites potentially, right? And, and then you get more parasites. It's, they reproduce faster. They, you know, they, they can cause a lot of immediate acute cases um, that can be pretty serious and could be fatal. There are several ways in which the kissing bug can transmit parasites to humans. Dr. Grijalva just described one of the most dangerous methods of infection, the actual ingestion of the infected bugs. The most common infection vector is that where the kissing bug bites a person, which causes an itchy spot and possibly even a small open wound. When people scratch the spot, they move feces left behind by the bug onto the wound, which because the feces is infected with the parasite, then creates a direct vector through the skin and into the bloodstream for the parasite. This type of infection may result in less acute symptoms than those described by Dr. Grijalva, but can still have long-term chronic consequences for the individual, eventually resulting in death from cardiac failure. The core problem, as explained by Grijalva, is that the chichuro bug is endemic to the region and impossible to fully eradicate. In rural areas, such as the villages where the fieldwork was conducted, homes were built from traditional materials, such as adobe bricks. Those building materials provide ideal environments in which the kissing bugs can hide and also multiply. Consequently, the focus of this summer's program was to do epidemiological studies exploring the rate of infestations in homes throughout the three villages. Lori Lambert, who is the Director of Operations for the program, explained the scope of the work being done in the three villages. 
we have about 50 people. A few more, but about that, yeah. And then how many people from OU do you know that off the top of your head? We have, with the professors, we have about a little, I think we have 20. 20. Give or take one or two. Oh, what about What Do you know the names of the three villages that we're doing work in? Yeah, it's Chakiska, which is where we are now, um, Bella Maria, and Guara. And um, over the course of the two-week period, um, is the goal to get to all the houses, or, or do you approximately know how many houses are? No, sort of each no each project has a specific number of houses um, that they would like to get to. The idea is to get to about five a day. Mm -hmm. So, which is kind of aggressive. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is. I don't. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But um, because we knew that might not be, we might not hit that. Um, so there are going to be some people who stay a third week. So the OU students are only here for two weeks, and some of the logistics team. So a small contingent will stay behind for a third week um, to finish up anything that needs to be finished up. What do you think the... Um, I mean, this is a complex project to just plan. I'm sure that you were planning for it for months and months and months. What do you think is the most important thing to like pull off a success on bringing this many people, you know, to a different country, getting them into the field? I mean, is there any is there any like tips that would make sure they're well fed <laughs> and have yeah. water? Yeah. Um, I think it's also important to set expectations for folks. Um, do you think they come in with higher expectations, or well, or just recalibrate because they're in a different place? Yeah, recalibrate because they're in a different place. I mean, we work long days. We get up yeah. really early, and, and it's tiring. Yeah. And sometimes it's a little tedious, too, after two weeks. Mm -hmm. um, so helping people understand it's not always pretty, it's not always easy, um, we're going to be tired, <laughs> and sometimes we're going to be bored or waiting or just that things, things work differently. So um, helping, making sure we communicate some of those expectations. And I think it's quite frankly almost impossible to help people really understand but um, preparing them is important um, but yeah I think those things help a lot yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. throughout the special series on Ecuador you will hear about service learning village schools and other topics relevant to teaching and learning but the main part of our activity was working in the field finding bugs I accompanied a three-person epidemiological team from the regional department of health on the first day of field work, we visited three homes, though which technically were part of the same village, were separated by distances of well over a mile and elevation changes of well over 100 feet. We did a lot of hiking on dirt paths and gravel roads to reach each of the houses. At just over 6,000 feet above sea level, the hiking was taxing when climbing up steep paths, but also gave perspective on what community members go through to do simple things like going to school or even walking to a neighbor's house to talk with them, let alone trying to find a way to find grocery items and those sorts of things. At each house, the epidemiologist interviewed the family to determine if they had seen the kissing bug in their homes. Those interviews lasted approximately 30 minutes. After the interviews, the bug detectives searched the homes for evidence of infestation. Each stop took about three hours from start to finish, with homes that had bugs taking noticeably more time. At our first house, no bugs were found, and no one was at home at the second house, which made it go relatively quickly. 
It only allowed actually for a cursory examination of the home. At the last house, however, which was occupied by a mother in her 20s and her little girl, bugs were found in a chicken coop that was made out of a sort of plastic container that was hanging on the outside wall of the adobe home. This is apparently a fairly common story in the search for bugs. The bugs find a home with other animals that are usually right next to the house where the people are living and eventually make their way deeper into the home. The epidemiologist captured as many bug samples as possible from the chicken coop, which included larvae through fully developed insects. And all well over 20 chichuros at different stages of development were found in the chicken coop, more than enough to place that family at risk. Upon returning to the staging camp at the community school, I asked my team members to describe the work we did over the course of the day. Um, so the part of the project that he works on is working toward the um, to end Chagas disease. And there are other parts of the project that he's not as familiar with, but the work that he does is to control Chagas. And how are you, how are you doing that today? It, searches for the kissing bug um, with the goal of controlling the transmission because the actual elimination of, of the Chagas disease, they're hoping to control Chagas disease, the actual elimination of Chagas disease um, is very difficult because the, the bug that transmits Chagas disease actually lives in the outskirts, in the forest. Um, at, at the first house, we did not uh, build a fire. In the second house, we built a fire. What, what was the difference? Why, why was that? So in that house, they discovered um, the bugs, kissing bugs, that transmit Chagas disease. And so it was the manner to control that because there are there were chicken. Yep. Yes. It was a chicken nest, and it had um, the, the um, um, eggs. Um, what are they called? Huevos. Uh, the huevos. Yeah, yeah. So they needed to um, burn that because that's where the kissing bug actually lives. Ah, pretty good. Um, mucho gracias, mi, mi amigos. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that translation was done by Lori Lambert. After taking samples, which would be analyzed by others in a lab, several parts of the chicken coop were burned, as they talked about in the clip you just heard. That was done to eradicate the remaining bugs and to reduce some of the risk to the family. Each of the homes were also sprayed with insecticide designed to kill the bugs, but unfortunately, those insecticides provide limited protection even after only a handful of weeks. 
My job with the team was to document each house by taking digital pictures. Because my team members and I shared very little common language, it took me one very failed attempt and a few laughs from my colleagues before I was able to actually figure out how to do my job correctly in taking the pictures that actually inserted a, a code to identify each home. You might think of it as a home address or case number. I didn't realize that was supposed to be in the picture and spent about 15 minutes taking pictures that ended up being worthless before they were finally able to help me understand what I was supposed to do. We did, however, get past the language difficulty, and I was not only able to do my part of the job, but was also able to help my team determine the longitude and latitude of each house, information also necessary for the official documentation of data. I'll come back to this issue of language in another podcast in the series because I wasn't the only one that sort of had to confront that, but also figure out ways to get past it while we were doing work in the field. We were part of multiple teams doing the same work across the three contiguous villages. Mario Grijalva went on to explain the general results of the first day of bug hunting. So we have three groups coming from the field uh, while searching the houses. Each of the groups have searched two houses and each of the, ha the groups have found one of them having bugs, so that is a 50% uh, infection rate, in, in uh, infestation rate, mm -hmm. which is extremely high. Mm -hmm. And so the bugs that are coming back to the labs are then going to be analyzed to see if they have the parasite, is that correct? Correct. Uh, they're going to be analyzing multiple ways. They're going to be analyzed for infection and then uh, for uh, morphometric characteristics so that they can be traced and identified if they belong to a population that is originally from the houses or from the bushes, and also uh, uh, for molecular analysis to do population genetics on the bugs, so we can trace uh, their origins and also archive that for uh, the fu uh, following up in the future. Doing work like this, particularly for someone who was trained in the comfy confines of the social sciences, was very enlightening. I was able to do work with people who spoke not only a different language, but also had different disciplinary training. I was able to do field work that involved something completely different than interviews and survey results. Through that experience, I gained an even stronger perspective on the necessity of interdisciplinary understanding when trying to solve big problems like disease mitigation. Both for me and for the students accompanying us, the learning experiences we have will shape much of how we think about our own roles and identities moving forward. There were some definite takeaways for me in terms of the teaching and learning practices that I was able to observe. First, deep learning takes place when people are out of their comfort zones. New cultures, new languages, new disciplines, all of those combine to heighten the senses to make us more aware and careful of what's going on around us. Second, I think you try harder when you know something is at stake. From the very first meeting, Mario Grijalva stressed the importance of what we were doing. Those words were given additional meaning when I met a family living mere centimeters away from a chichuro bug nest. All of a sudden, learning to take pictures correctly for the epidemiological team took on much greater importance, and I certainly felt invested in all the things that we were doing while working at each of the houses. Third, when Preparing, I think we can overthink things. I was seemingly randomly assigned to an epidemiological team. Of course, I'm not an epidemiologist, so I didn't have any knowledge to bring. And in fact, there was practically no shared language between me and them. 
on paper, that should not have worked. We should have uh, failed, or at least I personally should have failed in being able to add anything to the group that I was working with. In reality, however, we communicated and we solved problems together and actually ended up having a good day of work where I hope that we were able to help some of the families that we met. Um, overthinking the language issue, though, was something that I definitely went into the situation with, and it very quickly became something that was just not completely unimportant to what we were doing, uh, but certainly uh, the importance of what we were trying to accomplish was more relevant to what it was that I was doing than trying to think through um, exactly how to say things perfectly in broken Spanish um, or understand what they were doing uh, non-verbally. We just got past that and did our jobs. I may not have the opportunity to get substantial numbers of my students to be in Ecuador next summer. However, I know what the experience was like, and I can certainly look for closer experiences to home that will replicate some of what I saw while in Ecuador. I am convinced that finding ways to learn while working to solve big problems like Chagas disease, or maybe even something like opioid addiction that's more close to home, is critical to engaging today's students. And I think that's why it was so impactful for them. It's why it was so impactful for me. And we have to find ways to replicate that for more students, even if it doesn't involve going someplace like Ecuador. At the same time, the problems that we were focusing on, trying to take small steps towards the larger goal of fully mitigating Chagas disease in three small villages, it seems absolutely daunting. At the end of a long day of bug hunting, Grijalva reminded us of the reason why we have to continue doing that work, though. He received a text from a doctor in a neighboring community who was working with a gravely ill patient who had contracted Chagas disease. Uh, this patient is 41 years old. Um, indicates having seen, uh, uh, having lived in a house made of uh, mud, known and have been bitten by the kissing bug. Uh, many times, and he says for triatoma dimidiata, which is, wouldn't be around here, but that's what it reports. Uh, and that is uh, the the bug that this person is recognizing in the photographs. Uh, so knowing this area is probably Triatoma carioni rather, because the mediata is not here. But he recognizes uh, the picture shown in the doctor's office. And he indicates that uh, his, uh, his neighborhood has never been visited by the uh, by the uh, vector control program. He is in the Paltas County uh, in a sector called Huato uh, near to Yukunuma. And there are about 300 habitants. Um, Wato Yukonoma and Paltas. So that is that way on the other side of the, this valley, near uh, Catacocha. Um, so we are in Calvas. The next county over is uh, so the two children of this uh, woman have normal ECGs, uh, normal electrocardiograms. 
Certainly when you hear those words from Mario, you understand that even though you feel that your personal actions may have little impact on a big problem like Chagas disease spread, you also know that each step is important. You know that the work that you do and taking a picture and walking around for several hours from one house to another in a rural outpost village in Ecuador, it does have importance even though it's not something that you may personally be able to measure. You're part of a larger story, a larger narrative, and the work that you do as part of that narrative is maybe only one small piece, but you certainly feel a sense of personal accomplishment and you elevate what you're doing in that small part of the narrative to being something that's part of a much bigger one that does have a big impact. In previous episodes of this podcast, we have explored the topic of place-based learning. This international experience was a prime example, and it was fascinating to observe how learning activities intermingled. For example, learning to overcome language barriers while also learning to take on certain types, uh, to take certain types of pictures for an epidemiological research team, that all became something that was intermingled in my own personal experiences, and certainly something I was able to observe with the students and other faculty who accompanied us on the trips. Those types of experiences stick with you. It's like a great meal. I'm a social scientist, not a bug hunter, but working with real bug hunters unquestionably changed how I think about my role as a teacher and as a researcher. Well, that's going to do it for this story about one small part of the Ecuador trip. There's going to be other stories that you will learn about. You will meet teachers. You will meet students. uh, You will learn about other things that we accomplished while we were there. You also learn about the broader initiative of what's being accomplished down there. I think all of these narratives give insight into how a deep learning experience that is well-crafted can provide so many outcomes that are important for teaching and learning. Uh, And again, although we can't replicate that for every single student and every single faculty member, we can use the learning from that and and the observations from those experiences to try to find similar types of experiences that are maybe closer to home and require fewer resources to be enacted. Thank you for listening to Teaching Matters. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. You can always listen at woub.org slash listen. We're also available through several popular podcasting apps, including Google Play, iTunes, and NPR One. You can contact staff of the podcast with ideas, questions, or comments through our Facebook page. Just go into Facebook, search for Teaching Matters Podcast, and you'll be able to like us and also send information to us, whether that be in the form of questions or comments or ideas for future podcasts. Our audio engineer is Adam Rich. I'm Scott Titsworth, your host. Thank you for listening.